Welcome to the Conversions Podcast, where we discuss conversion rate optimization and the latest tips, technologies, and actionable strategies that you can actually use to get more of your website's visitors to take action. And now, your host, Francis Teo. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Convergence Podcast. It's been a while since I published an episode since I've been traveling. Today we have with us a very special guest, John Powell. John is a Senior Manager of Research and Strategy at MacLabs, the world's largest independent research lab focused exclusively on marketing and sales. He has over six years of hands-on conversion optimization experience, gained through managing hundreds of A-B and multivariate tests. In his current role, he has led a team of research managers to get significant increases in conversions for several MacLabs research partners. Welcome to the podcast, John. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a bit more about how you got into the optimization space? I would say it started about six years ago. I was working. Um, I'd come actually. I'd come from a uh, kind of a business, kind of a business and management position into I just got like a full time marketing role and. And I was doing a, a combination of marketing activities and a number of uh, actually even sales, some sales on the side. So I really had my hands in the fire um, from all different perspectives and points of the entire kind of conversion process, I guess you could say. The, the deeper that I got into it, the more frustrated I, I became because there were so many imperfections, um, so many things that we couldn't do or, or so many things that we couldn't try. Um, or, and, and honestly, a lot of it was, it, it, you know, a lot of it was dealing with old school rules and old school ways. And I think there are a lot of marketers out there that probably still experience that very much today. I had an opportunity to join Mech Labs uh, way back then. And um, I actually started on the CEO and uh, the founder, the managing director, Dr. Flint, McLaughlin, I, I started on his personal research team, and uh, when I saw that opportunity, I, I pretty much did whatever I could to try and take advantage of it, and uh, here I am, six years later, and uh, however many hundreds of, of tests later. So uh, it, it was one of the most appealing things at the time, and it was one of those opportunities that just came up, and I, I just couldn't resist. So how many hundred tests have you run? Well, I've honestly, I've lost count, but in terms of those that have statistical significance, um, you know, I've counted somewhere around 130 to uh, 150. And um, as you know, getting a test with statistical significance is significantly difficult, especially uh, for the kind of changes that um, we're used to making. So um, it's, uh, it's quite an accomplishment. Um, but yes, uh, a number of different tests, but um, of those that actually had that conclusive evidence. Uh, a good 100, 150, actually yeah, more around the, the 130, 150 range. That's a lot of tests. Yeah, it is. And I was surprised when I decided to actually count <laughs> the, the number of tests. And, and it continues to grow um, as I now am actually accessing the, the entire research library uh, more frequently and more often the knowledge base from even that personal experience continues to grow. So it's great. Could you tell us a bit more about your overall strategy and process you use for increasing conversions on websites? Sure. So what's funny about this is that it was actually kind of born out of, you know, the way and the challenge I had in just the full-time marketing, which was really, it just felt like I was just trying different things, right? And I would try something 
And it might work, it might not. And if it worked, my boss would say, okay, I want that success here. And I wouldn't know how to duplicate it. I might just know how to just, okay, I'll just do the same thing here and hope it works. Or it might not work and they'll say, why? And out of that experience and coming into this space, I've kind of grown to love uh, what I call a, a twofold process. And the two parts are these. The first part is the science-based diagnosis. Um, and when I say science-based, I mean um, it's derived uh, the, the practice and the methodology that I would use or my team would use to actually find the things to begin to adjust and tweak is based off of a, a meta theory, which is uh, just, it's like a foundation, right? Um, in fact, um, it's kind of part of the philosophy of science. And uh, it's one of those things where um, all science kind of starts with the meta theory, whether it's explicit or correct, uh, regardless of that. And so from that meta theory, you know, we would take a methodologies, which you could actually apply to a page, to an ad, to a process to figure out what the problem is. And the second half of that would be what I call the strategic test planning process. So it's the, it's the idea of, okay, I'm not just going to try these intuitive things, these things based off of uh, science and not just rules, but I'm, gonna, I'm going to make sure that when I finish, whether I win or lose, I'm going to get something of value. It's going to get me closer to the next, to the real win. I'm going to get a learning and or a lift, right? Um, and uh, oftentimes that means just taking time to write down the problem um, that you're trying to solve how you're going to solve it, the way you're going to measure it, and making sure it's, it's easy to understand. I actually wrote an entire blog post on that. But um, when you put it all together, I kind of like to think of it uh, like a doctor, right? Somebody goes into the doctor and something hurts or something's wrong. And they have to start from there to determine what the issue is and the best way to treat the patient and they don't just wait until they have all the data. They begin treatment right away while they're doing discovery. So um, I like to think of uh, my strategy and process of optimization, increasing conversions, uh, very much like uh, like a practice, like a medical doctor. I, I go in and I you know I begin my tests, my blood tests and things. But while I'm doing the blood tests, I'm going to begin treating or doing different treatments and, and things like that. It's very similar, actually, surprisingly, when you compare the two positions. Okay, so, well, you threw out a few big words there. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about this meta theory and the strategic test process? Sure. So, yeah, meta theory, I remember when I first kind of discovered it, I, I was like, well, what is the meta theory? Uh, that's way over my head. The good news about that is that it, it doesn't have to be way over head. It's simply a foundation. Um, that's the kind of the layman's term um, that I use. And what I mean by foundation is uh, in conversion, it's the idea or the foundation of the assumption that people don't buy from websites people buy from people. People evaluate websites and processes in the same way they criticize people. So, you know, for example, if they're upset with somebody because they seem arrogant or they seem like they're um, being assumptive, they're going to think about a website in the same way if um, they write the copy or they don't give them certain points of information or they expect them to finish a form without some reasonable explanation about something. Does that make sense? And 
if you take that foundation and then you put it into practice, you need some consistent way to do this, right? So what we have is these various, uh, we call them heuristics, and they're, they're, they're guides, right? Where they take the meta theory and they put it into what we call a, a formula or heuristic so that when somebody looks at the page, they can look for, say, the five primary or key levers to pull on to change the conversation, the way the person is perceiving it. So, for example, if you look at a form and um, we see a form, we see fields, we see text, we see requirements, we see um, a back-end system that needs to be satisfied. The customer sees work. They see annoyance. They see, do I have to? Is it worth it? I mean, if it's a product on the other side and they're like sold into the product, that's great. But what if there's something that indicates the site isn't secure? Okay, now we're talking about something else. Anxiety. We just see, okay, did we pay our bill to VeriSign? They see, is it, is this a scam? Am I actually going to get what I paid for? Is it going to be shipped to me in time? And if there's a problem, will they actually help me out, right? So the methodology bridges that gap. It helps us to see with customer logic rather than company logic. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense to me. <laughs> but I'm just thinking whether that would be confusing to the listeners. I think that's fine. It sounds very logical. Yeah, the, what I would say to listeners uh, to keep it simple is I would say, remember that you're dealing with people, right? People, it's kind of like if, if I were to give a tip, putting this whole meta theory methodology and everything, don't optimize the page. Optimize what's going on in their mind. Just think, what is the person thinking when they come to this page? Not, what am I thinking? What is the person thinking? And once you get into the mind of the person, you're going to see your page in an entirely new way, or your process, or your checkout, or um, whatever you're asking somebody to go through or to click on. Great. Sounds like a very good advice. Once we have the meta theory in place, you mentioned something about a strategic test process. How does that work? Yes. So strategic test process, it's very much process. It's steps, right? So for example, um, to summarize it in brief, I'm going to look at the page or process that I'm trying to optimize for conversion. And I'm first going to determine what the problem is. I'm going to figure out, try to understand why I don't have uh, more conversions, right? And um, in science, uh, if you were to run any kind of an experiment, you're going to have to come up with a hypothesis, right? And that's the first major step of a strategic test process. You're going to determine what the problem is, or you're going to make a very educated guess on the problem. And like a detective, you're going to make a case. You're going to say, I'm looking at the metrics, and they tell me this. I look at the page in the mind of the person, and I see this. And when I put them together, it just overall, it looks like this is the big issue that we're dealing with. From there, once you've got a hypothesis and perhaps you've shared it with your team and they're in agreement, then you ask yourself, how am I going to solve for it? Or is it even really a big deal at all? How do I make sure that this is indeed the problem? Well, you begin to look at the way in which you make changes to the page or to the process so that you're addressing the problem in the mind of the person. So if the person is confused by your choices, it might be changing the choices that you give them or even the wording of the choices, right? From there, you've got to determine, well, how do I know if I've won? How do I know other than conversions are up or down? 
right? Or what is a conversion? Is it a click? Because if you're in a different channel, or let's just say that you're in content marketing, trying to build traffic for your e-commerce site, then you need to make sure you know what success means wherever you're at. And then you've got to determine, well, okay, how am I going to actually run the test so that the results, when I get them, can actually be taken seriously? Because Right. You, anybody can go out there and say, yay, um, I went out and talked to 10 people and I figured this out. Well, that's only 10 people. What about 1,000 or 10,000? The more people that, that you actually put under the fire, the more accurate of a response you're going to get. So you have to determine how you're going to run the test. Are you going to split the traffic? How much traffic that you need? Then you'll actually complete the process of making the pages, making the changes, implementing them, making sure they work. And then you'll run the test and then at the conclusion, you'll do an interpretation. So it's very much process and you can follow the same process over and over and over again. And you're actually going to get a result that you can use, um, which is what did I learn about this problem? Well, it exists or it doesn't exist. Then when we do this, it has an effect or doesn't have an effect. Does that make sense? Yes. So on your hypothesis, on forming a hypothesis, when given a website or a web page, to optimize, what would you look at first if you want to find something to test? First thing I would look at is the analytics. Um, we've we've surveyed a number of marketers with the Marketing Sherpa brand. Of you know, oftentimes it's thousand, fifteen hundred plus about things that they used in order to learn more about their customers, to learn more about the problems that are occurring in their site. And analytics examination is the, one of the top kind of takeaways or tactical things that you can do. And you don't even have to run a test there. You can look at your analytics and see where there may be drop-offs, where there may be problems. Um, and oftentimes when you look at it in your analytics, you can look at it in four different ways. You can look at the who, right, um, which is where they're coming from, source-based data. You can look at the what they are doing, right, which is it's more of less the result. So are they going here or are they going there? You can look at the where and the when, which is the amount of people. So where are they actually landing? Where are the majority of people coming in? Are they coming here? What are they doing? And then the why, the nature-based data, which is oftentimes, you know, things like time on page, right? Um, click tracking, okay, heat maps. So when they get to the page, if combining this other information with the why, I can then determine or get a better idea of what's really happening. From there, you might use a, a methodology uh, like, a, for example, our conversion heuristic, where we would look at, we would examine how forceful is the value proposition of the page? Is there any friction or annoyance caused by the page? Are there any barriers? Then I would say, is there anything that's causing concern or is there anything concerning on the page? And then from all of that, I would then kind of make a determination of what I believe the issue is. Okay, sounds good. Sounds like a very structured process for finding out what to test rather than testing random stuff. Right, and I can send you a link also to uh, a couple of posts that I've written that, that write this out step by step. So if your uh, listeners are interested in learning more, they can. Yeah, well, the reason why I'm bringing this up, because very often I have clients or potential clients coming to me, or even clients with, uh, with where we have done some work, 
with for some time and they start going into uh well let's just test changing this picture uh, or some or some really random like let's see whether moving this element to some random location would increase conversions i'll be like well maybe but you know let, let's go through a more structured process to find out what to test based on the hard data we have and sometimes we even run surveys so there'll be more of like a qualitative kind of research yeah what i've discovered is um even with say something like analytics examination and this was reviewing a, a comparison of probably 20 or 30 tests in a three or four month period we uh, i discovered firsthand and this is something that we've confirmed with the rest of the research that we have here at the lab i've confirmed firsthand that when you design a test with things like analytics examination, right, and a strategic process, you're you're significantly more likely to get a learning and or a lift. And I demonstrated this to one particular research partner through multiple channels, through their homepage channel, through their product pages, through their checkout. Um, in every area in which we did research, we discovered that these kind of random, like, I don't know, maybe they called it optimization, like images. And you're right, it was like images, it was like layout. It didn't really, it wasn't really connected to anything other than stuff we can do. But when we connected it to the meta theory, to, okay, maybe there's a person coming here, right? And then we looked at the analytics from a personal perspective. All of a sudden, we had this entire new world of things to test. And we needed a process in which to carry those tests through. So... It's very rewarding, but it's somewhat trialing in the beginning. Yeah, maybe you could share, share with us a bit more about this whole, yeah, the work with the research partners in terms of, well, maybe not any specifics, but the difficulties in getting them to understand like, you know, this is important. We need to analyze this, the analytics and whatever data we have so that we we will know what to test. I'm, I expect that to be quite difficult because it seems that there's no real progress, like, you know, because... Testing has become so easy with so many platforms available. It's very tempting to just get out there and test anything rather than take a step back and spend a significant amount of time getting and analyzing the data. So, yeah, and I think a lot of marketers on the front lines really struggle sometimes, even if they have like, um, let's just say that they have a strategic test planning process. Well, let's just say they understand the meta theory and they're ready to apply it. They still have to help those that they work with understand and to know what is exactly they're thinking. Otherwise, they're just going to compare it to what they're doing. It was funny, we studied actually in one of our recent benchmark guides how different marketing positions so maybe the front lines position, you're doing the work versus a middle manager versus a CMO type position. Each position acts differently. They make decisions differently. And we actually was a, we were able to kind of quantify it under different categories. It was really interesting. So that leaves the marketer or even the middle manager to ask, how is it that I can align the team to, to take this approach? And what I've discovered to be one of the most effective approaches to do that is to create what I call a decision intersection. A decision intersection, it, you could be more like a, a deliverable or some sort. It's, it's kind of like a presentation, but it doesn't have to be a full blown out presentation. And what it does is that it allows you to present a story. One of the most effective forms of getting buy-in or alignment with your team or with others is story. And um, because story 
just like with people visiting your site, it's the way in which they process and the, it's the way in which they learn. They organize their thoughts in the form of story. So if you were to go into somebody and say, I want to try this, let's do it. They're going to say, mm, how is that any different than what I have in my mind? But if you were to say, I've discovered this case study where this occurred and I look at our site and I'm seeing similar patterns. What would be the possibility that this exact same thing is happening with us? So you see what they're doing is they're starting to tell a story. They're starting to develop a problem. They're starting to get an agreement on the problem. And then say, and what if we took this approach similar here to these other situations and applied it? What would be the result? Could it actually be similar? And, and what you're essentially doing is you're helping them process the information the same way that you have to come to a conclusion that this is the best approach to take. So you're really not just demanding that take the approach this way. You're actually helping them come to the conclusion by the use of story, by the use of facts, by the use of data. And again, you're not forcing it, but you're, you're again, giving them the opportunity to understand in greater detail. I remember um, Dr. Flint McLaughlin gave me a great piece of advice recently, actually. Um, it was more of a confirmation. He said, Poor decisions are often the result of poor perspective. People can't oftentimes see the entire picture. And when they can't see, they can't make a good decision. So what you would do if you're in that position where you need to help others get alignment is to help them see. And what's one of the most effective ways to help them see? Tell a story. Bring a case study. Bring an additional fact. Bring some data from your site about your customers. Anything that you have to come to a conclusion and then say, what would be the most effective way to approach this problem? Present it in the same form. And you're more likely, you're not guaranteed, but you're more likely to get alignment because you're, again, helping them come to a conclusion. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And it's great advice. Uh, whether you are an agency or you're just a marketer working in a larger organization, because you're, you're working with people and it's rather important to get that alignment with everybody else working on the project. I remember I, I, Robert McKee, he's one of the, probably the, the most well-known uh, screenwriter teachers uh, in the film industry. He had uh, mentioned that one, and it was actually in a Harvard Business, Business Review article, excuse me, Harvard Business Review article. He had mentioned that one of the reasons why a story is so incredibly powerful is as a way to get alignment or to help people understand is, is that it acknowledges the risk and the dark side because you can't have a story without some sort of problem some sort of issue right and um, if you're just showing somebody all the good and you're not actually talking about some of what's not good they might be arguing with you in their heads right um, but if you can at least acknowledge that argument that they have you're helping them to see that you're looking from their eyes as well so it's a very effective way to try and, and help others see more clearly Yep, definitely. So well, this would be a good time to touch on this whole... Uh, you mentioned right at the start that you were frustrated that you could not find a transferable knowledge or insights that you can transfer from something that has worked to another website or another business. Yes. So do you find that a lot of insights are transferable across tests? Yes, and, and they can be. One of the ways in which we confirm this is that we actually will take a learning because we designed the test well in the beginning. That's the benefit of the strategic test planning process. We're able to take that learning, 
within context, right? And um, because it's in the context of the person and not necessarily the page, then we would look at another aspect of the process or a channel and apply it. I remember one change that we made where um, it was with a very large B2C research partner. They're very well known in the U.S. We had changed, we had adjusted a, I think it was the checkout process, and it was in a particular channel, and we saw a 533% increase in completions. And uh, we wondered what would be the effect of a similar change or the same context of change in the PPC channels or in the SEO channels, in the main site channel, in all of these different places. And what we discovered was that on their main product page in the main site, outside of a particular channel, it was 331%. On some of the PPC channels, it varied all the way from 30 to 300 to 400%. Um, even for the homepage, it was a 30 or 40%. Given the traffic load, that was a pretty significant increase in checkouts. Um, but what was really interesting, Francis, was that in the banner ad channel, where traffic was coming in from banner ads, insignificant. And what that taught us was that while the change had a very similar you know, effect on multiple audiences, it helped us to understand that audiences from a particular channel, notably banner ads and such, just did not have as high enough motivation. Because this, again, it was a very significant increase everywhere else except this channel. So it kind of confirmed that these changes can be applied to multiple places and it can at the same time when they are applied teach us about how these audiences differ and how they are similar. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Because uh, I would expect that oh, the motivation of or the mindset of person who clicks on the banner might be very different from somebody who comes in through a PPC channel. That's right. It was kind of a confirmation of what we believed to be true about traffic from that particular channel. It was a great way to prove it because it was getting great gains everywhere else but here. So that left the marketing department with the question, how much more money do we spend on this channel? <laughs> and unless we're trying to just do branding instead of direct response, then it's a different story. Yeah, this is a, it's totally not in the outline, but basically running a, a test or a conversion. I'm basically doing some work for a client right now and they are very used to traffic coming from a PPC channel. And basically when we run like a banner ad or even a social media ad kind of, they don't get the same results. And I try to explain to them, well, you know, this is because these people are not looking to buy at all yet. So if we want to, we need to, we need to warm them up and get them through maybe a, a, a lead generation funnel or something like that. And it's really hard to explain because when you're used to uh, traffic where they are almost ready to buy, it's very highly targeted and highly motivated traffic from PPC. It's hard to, to get out of the mindset of like that kind of, oh, these people are ready to buy or almost ready to buy and we just need to uh, reinforce the value proposition or similar compared to someone coming in from other channels which are really cold traffic. Yeah, it's, it's really different. It's funny um, that you mentioned that too. We I had recently um, posted or actually I more or less shared um, with my followers on Twitter. What was interesting is that in social media, we've discovered, and this is a combination of, of the marketing experiments, uh, you know, test protocol library with the benchmark guides and all of the, the qualitative-based uh, research that we do with marketers on the field, uh, Marketing Sherpa, we actually discovered that social media is almost a terrible channel for um, direct response. I mean, every, every marketer that we survey, um, very few actually find it to be very effective. However, 
what they are finding is that social media is actually a very effective way to generate traffic, um, i.e. inbound marketing or content marketing, specifically blogs, video content sharing, things, social uh, mediums that allow you to tell full story. And what ends up happening is that people will actually go to the site because of that social media and then in turn they will are more likely to buy or they're more engaged and they might come for a return visit but oftentimes if somebody's trying to use social media to like buy now right as they go it's it's not very effective but yet it is effective in a way to generate traffic and to at least start a conversation with a customer um particularly through blogs video content sharing. I, I think I just shared a case study um, of Zag, the guys who make the Invisible Shield. Um, Marketing Sherpa, we recently posted a case study how they were using their blog as a way to increase traffic, which was then increasing sales. It, was, it wasn't a direct connection, but they, they saw it happen. And so they actually became very, uh, very specific in their blog efforts and very frequent. So um, it's just an interesting learning. Could you tell us the top three conversion problems you see on websites and e-commerce shops today? So um, I'm going to answer this in kind of where on the site. Uh, so the, the first thing that I would say is probably carts or checkout processes, specifically for e-commerce. And what you're going to find here is there's always a group of people. And so when I say a group of people, I'm talking about in the aggregate of all the visitors that make it to your checkout process, there's always a group significant enough to, to impact your bottom line and your top line. There's always a group that's not being reached well. They're not being talked to well. And oftentimes they're scared. They, um, they need all this additional insur- assurance about return policies, this credibility of your site, the, you know, the credibility of your offer. Is there a satisfaction guarantee? I mean, we're talking simple things, simple changes um, that when ignored cause abandonment for this group. We actually have a web clinic, I think, next week where we'll be highlighting uh, the top four reasons why people abandon checkout processes. And um, But the, the big issue there in checkout processes, especially for e-commerce, is that us marketers, we assume that when somebody clicks add to cart, and they even start the checkout process that they've already made the decision. But what's actually truly happening is that, you know how people are, they want to make sure that a purchase or a decision they are going to make is in their favor, right? So if there's a lot of money that they're spending, and they know that they're going to have to, when they pull out that credit card, that's when they think about their bank account. And then they start justifying with their outermost brain, the logical part of their brain, why this is the right purchase. There's no value. There's absolutely nothing. There's only work. There's only fields that you have to fill out, totals, and there's no reminder as to what you're truly getting except for maybe a very small thumbnail image and maybe a one-line description. And what's funny is that we're um, there's always a, a small group or maybe a large group of people that are very forgetful. They forgot the whole reason why they're getting it after they left the product page. So what do you do? You fill in that gap. You help them remember you help them justify the purchase when they're actually thinking about the reasons when to abandon, you know, of why to abandon. So that's one of the biggest conversion problems that I see in e-commerce is that we assume that they're ready and that they're done when really they're not. Once they pull that credit card out, all of a sudden they're in justification mode. We have to help them justify. And the way we do that is, is in the supporting columns, in and around buttons, uh, things like that. Just the way in which we present the value throughout the checkout process. Number two, I would say, would be home pages. 
And I would say this in two ways. The first one, which is, it's actually something that I've noticed unfolding over the last year or two in a lot of our testing. I've seen, I've watched with my own eyes, a new headline in four bullet points completely change the entire conversion metric by like 40 or 50%. All they did was change the headline and the first four bullets, four or five pages ahead of where they actually entered their credit card before they even see the details of the product. Can you believe that? So you're, you're saying that a change of, of a headline and a few bullet points impacts the actual revenue in the back end? Yes. Um, and it's weird. You wouldn't expect that, right? But um, I, this happened in multiple instances, in firsthand and also, I, I mean, just recently, geez, these are recently closed experiments in the last probably two months. I watched as a headline and four bullet points on the homepage, the first page in a five or six page process actually changed conversion on that sixth page. And the funny thing was, is I saw the same thing happen with the microsite that I was testing on. We actually allowed visitors to begin the checkout process on the very beginning on a particular product. And the funny thing was, is they weren't using it. They were actually using the one five steps down, but there was one change where we made just in the, in the main bullet points that changed everything. And um, what I think is happening, if you think about it in terms of the meta theory, which is people don't buy from websites, they buy from people, is that when you help them see everything that you're offering or the thing that you're offering from a new perspective, it helps them to understand. It's, it's giving them more perspective, right? We don't just offer this. We, all, we are the only ones that offer this. Or we are the... What you're doing is you're helping them make the decision before. So when they actually get to the product and they get to the checkout process, they're seeing everything from that perspective. I'm trying to think of a, a real life example of this that, you know, people would be familiar with. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, perhaps um, an instruction manual, for example. You could look at a product and say, okay, you could try and figure it out. But when you look at everything from a manual first, you see things in a different way. I actually did a test with the associate director of optimization here. This is about a year or so ago, year and a half ago. We added a page to the checkout process. We added a page and that page explained the process. We added friction. We made it harder for them, but we actually saw a 40% increase in completions. And this is like a 16 page process. So setting context, helping them to see helping them to understand what they were getting into, helping them to see the value so that when they came to a point of decision, they would remember that. So e-commerce shops, okay, why are you the best e-commerce shop compared to the next one? Why should I buy these things from you? Um, why should I um, shop you as a retailer rather than the other retailer that's similar to you? And they're going to remember that when they actually come to the decision point because they're probably going to open up the other shop and they might see a slightly different price. Maybe it's the same price. Now they're thinking, well, then why these guys? Because we're 100% free shipping. We always, it's free shipping for every order over 25 or something like that. And it's kind of like you offer it on everything. So you, I don't know if you could really count it as an incentive. But I knew a guy that he used a size of lead generation because he sold windows that were very expensive. Um, so he would get them started in the process in the site and um, to buy the windows. And then he would have to talk to them and finish a transaction offline because it was always so custom. 
the windows are expensive. For every window that he sold, compared to his competitors, they were perceived to be upgrades, right? So he only sold windows that had this rating. He only sold windows that had this kind of insulation. He only sold windows that had these things. And so he put it, he changed the headline on his homepage, three free upgrades, you know, because they're comparing him to the competition that, that makes them pay for it. And guess what? 100% increase in the people wanting orders. So just helping them see. I came across a potential client recently who wanted to do some optimization on their homepage. And this is a direct, it's, it's more of a microsite. But the issue was they had a lot of attention focused on the buy now button, which was above the fold on the right in the very typical fashion these days. Uh, and, and the contrast of the button was made to be totally different from the rest of the page. And I was like, well, why are you doing that? Like, you're calling so much attention to this buy now button, but there's no attention called to your headline, to the copy, not even to the form fields which they need to fill in before they hit the buy button. Like, why are you doing that? And the response was like, well, you know, the buy button is pretty important. We, we want to focus attention there. And I was like, but you, you have not given them that many reason to buy. Uh, you know, you have not, you've not even told them what kind of product you're selling. It's important. You want to date, but, um, you know, if, if that's what you're trying to do, but if you can't even introduce yourself and get to know the person, even if you want to be friends, you can't expect them to want to spend time with you later or at some other point. I call this greedy marketing because they're asking, doing the ask really early. They want the sale, they want the lead without offering value first and I'm quite surprised that when I explain this you know you need to offer some value at least you need to tell them what you are selling before you expect them to buy there's a lot of resistance do you find that to be true yeah and and that's why um I've gone as far as to see where it happens in real life I call it um marketing is like middle school dating or um you know where it's you know sixth seventh eighth grade where you try all of these wacko bizarre things like you know you write somebody a note and you you ask them out or something, right? Instead of just getting to know the person and seeing if you're going to be friends, right? Or, or trying to, um, or I guess if maybe you're, you're, you are starting to date somebody and then you give them a ring right away, you might scare them, right? If, if they're not ready, you're not ready. And it's funny when you, when you help people see how it's like this other instance in real life, they might not, they, they, they might back off a little bit and they might think, but wait, wait, I had this one page where when I made the button really big and I put it over the fold, it got more. And I was like, well, then I would ask them, how much does that particular group of people know about you before going to that page? A lot. Are they returning visitors? Usually. Are they customers already? Probably. That's why uh, in e-commerce, um, especially if you're sending out emails, if you're sending out an uh, email newsletter or um, emails to returning customers or, or like existing customers, a list, you're probably going, what you're going to find a lot of times is you're going to find that the more products and things that you put on there, you're probably going to see an increase. But if it's somebody that's new, that's not familiar, you're going to have a much harder time. So um, it's very interesting, but you're you're right. It's it's all about how much they know, you know, before you make the ask. If you make the ask too early, you're just going to lose them. I see that a lot. Uh, you had one more conversion problem you were looking, you wanted to mention. Yes. So um, when I think about e-commerce sites, you know, you look at the checkout process, you look at the the homepage. I think the final area that's the biggest, what I would say, opportunity for conversion is 
getting them to the right product. And it's going to be different for every single e-commerce shop, and I'll tell you why. Um, there are some e-commerce groups um, that are big that have a really big catalog following. So they got big because they're in the catalog business, the, the direct mail catalogs. And people want to buy their products online instead of fill out a paper, wait five days, then get the order confirmation, wait five more days, right? But in that instance, they were having a hard time finding the product that was in the catalog. So just getting them to the right product would help them solve their issue. Um, there was a, in one particular partner instance where we, instead of giving them, a, you know, leading them to a single page or something, we gave them multiple options. And because of that, we're able to help them identify the one that they wanted and the conversion increased. But for other sites, it may be different. Sometimes it's search functionality. Sometimes it's filtering. Can you imagine, you know, say in the phone business where you're online selling phones, you're going to have to help somebody find the right phone. And you got to think about things that people, how they make decisions about phones. Honestly, some people make the biggest part of their decision is color. Before smartphones, that was one of the biggest things. You know, what's the color of the phone? I want a red phone. <laughs> That's how I made decisions. And then smartphones came along, but now it's, it's different. But you see, helping them get to the right product is really important because, um, that's what gets. That's what really gets them engaged. And if you can't get them to the right product, for example, I knew an e-commerce shop that they had thousands of SKUs, thousands of SKUs, and they made a top 50 and they put it in their navigation. They added it to the top left because all their navigation was on the left. They added it. They said the top 50, the uh, branded top 50. You know how much money they made off of that? Just because they suggested or they helped somebody to find the most popular or the right. And that's um, the big, one of the biggest opportunities. The only problem is, is that the reason why it's a challenge, it's going to take more resources because everybody, every e-commerce shop is going to be slightly different in terms of how they, you know, what they focus on. But the concept is the same, getting them to the right product fast. And if you can't do that, sometimes it's the products, but a lot of times it's just getting them there. Um, and that's where people lose their patience. It's... Um, Take female clothing sites. If you don't have a view all function on your um, category pages where they can scroll, 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 they get very annoyed very quickly. Okay, they just want to be able to scroll and look and browse. And, you know, if especially if it's clothing, you may discover that the image is actually more important for helping them to make a decision than the actual description or anything else. Does that make sense? Or the way in which the, you know, so those things really make a difference. But those would be the three areas. You know, you've always got a group of people in the checkout that we're speaking to immaturely. You've always got um, the large group and that may not be seeing either your shop or your products in the right perspective. And then there's always a group of people that just, if they could only get to that product they know and they, they love and they want to find, they're not already being directed there from like a search ad or something, then that's a problem. And that's where a lot of people drop off. Great. This would be a good point to transition into case studies. Could you share with us some of the more interesting conversion optimization case studies you've worked on and perhaps the lessons learned from them? And uh, I, I, the last point you made about having the fashion sites and the pictures was quite interesting because usually when we think of expressing a value proposition, we're talking about copywriting, expressing value, stuff like that. But on the fashion side, that's kind of different. Do you have any particular case studies you can share regarding that? Because that's rather unique. Well, we have a number of case studies that show the effect of images. Um, and it's going to change from industry and vertical and even product types. So 
you can take one e-commerce shop, which focuses primarily on like selling computer parts. Honestly, it's going to be all about the specs, especially in different parts of the world. I think Lenovo, um, when I was uh, interviewing Ashish um, from Lenovo, who's part of the global intelligence uh, unit, he had described a case study where um, in Japan, particularly, all they cared about were the specs. You had it, but in the U.S., it was different. They wanted, uh, they cared more about other elements of the process. That you know, when you really increase the amount of specs or focus on it, it actually hurts. So, um, it, but if you have fashion, you know, the effect of images could be phenomenal, and you could, it could be hundreds of percents or fifty. Um, Really, what you're going to, it's going to be difficult to isolate it. Um, I can't think of any, I'm trying to think of one of our recent ones in the fashion industry in particular where we tested that. It just escapes my mind. But I, I do know um, the concept, or I guess the, the point is, is very well kind of illustrated. And it's just really interesting what people care about to make a decision, especially as it relates to the products that they're getting. Okay, so this point always comes on every single episode of this podcast. That would be the, the whole point of transfer, transferability of the knowledge. And you mentioned that if you discover an insight about a certain the, the customers of a certain website or a certain online business, you're able to transfer that process or that knowledge uh, to other parts of the business. But what I've found, and I think what you've just touched on, would be across uh, different kinds of businesses, those are not so transferable simply because the customers are different. Right. It's, yeah, it's people. People buy from people, not websites. So if the people are different, then that would demand that we, we consider an approach that's more tailored to them. Yeah, so I have a bit bit of difficulty. I know you mentioned about like let let's look at other what other people have done to. I I know you have mentioned some case studies where we can present to decision makers or stakeholders or to convince them that you know this has worked before for another site. But in reality, I mean, of course that helps. But uh, in reality, you're going to find that what worked for one website might not necessarily work for work for another just because they are different uh, in terms of customer base. Right. I think the thing to keep in mind, especially if, if especially if you're thinking about your own like marketing career, um, if you're a marketer out there and trying to go from one group to another and you do want to take your knowledge with you. And Robert McKee said it best in terms of story. Somebody uh, from Brazil of uh, television station there was interviewing him and they asked him, is the principles of story the same regardless of culture or part of the world? And he said the form and I, I maybe miss, I, I hopefully I'm not butchering his quote, but the form of story is the same, right? Human nature will, is always going to be the same if you're human. No matter where you are in the world, if you're a human, your nature is the same. But the values that you prioritize are going to be different. So he said, for example, in the Middle East, you're going to be, it's going to be focused more on life and death, right? Perhaps. And he said for Paris, it might be the meaningful life versus the meaningless life, correct? So in optimization, and particularly through this meta theory, everybody requires a conversation. Hi, my name is, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? You get, a conversation has parts, correct? A headline, a subheadline, body, like there's elements of the page work together, form a conversation. You always need that. If that's the kind of thing that you're testing, you're going to find that it doesn't matter what website you go to, 
it's going to have the same effect, especially if it's not there. Now, when you start talking about what they value or specific area, think specific focuses of the value proposition, specific approaches, that's where you're going to find the changes, right? You know, in order to have a conversation, you know, the best conversation is going to have all these parts, but they may value one aspect of that conversation because it helps them to see more clearly. So the form itself is the same, but the values and the emphases of within the conversation will change depending on the industry, the vertical, the type of person that you're talking to. Um, and it's a great thing to keep in mind, and it's the same in story when it comes to culture and human nature. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, do you have any other case studies you would like to share, especially those that are more, well, interesting, let's put it that way? I think one of the, the more fabulous ones, uh, this is more lead generation than anything, but um, we uh, added form fields, added, not subtracted, but added form fields to a page and, and actually produced 100% more conversions. Um, what we did in addition to that is we added a, a, a little bit of explanation and, um, and in term, and in term we, we set them up to expect a really good conversation as opposed to give us enough information so we can sick our latest sales shark on you. You know what I mean? Um, what we did instead is give us the right amount of information so we can get you hooked up with the right expert or the right person that you have questions for. Does that make sense? So one excites the person and the other one doesn't. And the way in which we said, okay, how do we create that excitement? Well, let's ask for information that makes them believe that it's going to be a good conversation, right? Let's focus the conversation on these things. And let's add a little bit of explanation. So you see how we use elements of the page to create something in the person, right? And that is what made the change. It wasn't the fact, it wasn't the actual things on the page necessarily. Does that make sense? So that's what made that one really interesting was that it kind of confirmed the meta theory, which is if you connect with the person through the elements of the page and you create something in them, they're going to respond differently. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, I already mentioned that the adding the explanation page in the process where of multiple pages and forms actually increased in, in a couple instances. Again, it, it helped set the context of what they would expect. I think um, what's really interesting is there was a, one of my um, friends uh, who's a VP of marketing at a, a supplement company who sells supplements online. Uh, I have supplements clients. They, they make the most interesting projects. Yes, yes, for, for sure. The... Um, what was interesting is that the, the owner had invested a lot of time and energy into the Facebook following. Like he, he like the owner himself goes on to Facebook and answers questions and provides value, Q&A, whatever, to the community. And I was like, well, why don't you just show how many people like and whatever on your checkout page? There was a conversion increase that came with that, that suggestion. Right. I mean, because, you know, when they see so many likes. They're like, oh, it's on Facebook. And I know when I go on Facebook, I usually complain. But if there are a lot of people liking, there's a lot of activity on Facebook, then I'm just going to feel better about my purchase, especially with the supplement industry where, you know, nothing's really regulated. So, I mean, stupid stuff like that. And I say it's I say stupid. I mean, silly. I mean, just things that you wouldn't expect that change the whole perception of what they're getting into. Um, there was another e-commerce example where one group was sending two different types of, of traffic into the same registration process because they had to register in order to buy. Well, when we separated those two channels, what we discovered is one page, which is extremely minimal, short, to the point, boom, um, performed really well with one channel, and it was the biggest loser with another channel. And what we discovered was that um, in one channel, people were just wanting to move, move, move. 
right? And so obviously the quick, easy, best, you know, what you would consider to be best practices version one. But in another channel, the lesser the form fields, the less information you collected, the more of a scam you were. Because this was a site in an industry that was changing things. The competitors, the big competitors would require you to go through this long registration process and then you'd have to get on the phone and buy the stuff from them. Like it was part of the credibility. So if you didn't ask for a certain amount of information, they didn't believe you. They didn't believe you to be a real company. And so all we did there is we just added stuff around the form and that saw the most significant increase. So, and that one performed the worst um, in the other channel. So if you see, if we would have combined the two, we would have got a wash but we separated the two. So that was one of the really interesting uh, findings that I've had um, over the, you know, over the many tests. And um, another thing that was interesting in e-commerce is sometimes the small stuff in the product pages, the things that we like to change, maybe layout, some of the layout, some of the, you know, some of the copy or description copy and all that doesn't really make a huge difference. You know, there are bigger things that do a better job, but sometimes the small things really just don't make a big difference, just inconclusive. So, um, and, and then finally, one of the, my favorite tests is um, we were doing, um, it was confirmation of something I was suspected and I discovered in a lot of tests where sometimes you can't separate a headline from a, from a subheadline or sometimes you can't separate a piece, one piece of value from another in order to get the gain. We, we tested this with PPC ad where we changed just the headline, then we changed just the description, then we changed both the headline and the description. And this, you know, we combined the two changes together. And what happened was just the headline lost significantly, just the description lost significantly. I mean, statistically, right? But the combination of the two won significantly. And this is compared to the control. Very interesting. So it's like coffee. I mean, some people just the, without the cream and the sugar, they're not having it, right? You, there's going to be a market for black coffee. I'm one of those people. I like my coffee straight. Some There's going to be a very small market of people that want just some cream or just some sugar, but the mass market is in the combination. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point because I always try to run tests where the message is congruent across pages. And there's, again, there's, there's always resistance. They'll be like, well, the people are pre-sold. They, uh, they need to... They already are ready to buy, so let's you know just put the button in front of them once more. So I'll be like, well, even if they are somewhat informed about the product, you know, it, it's worth it to mention it one more time. So that that's about like what you mentioned about the headline and the and the copy, the ad copy. So it's it's not because I guess one thing I would say is like it's not because you mentioned it in the headline. That means that that's it. It's useful to reinforce it most of the time. And of course, this all should be tested because we never know. Do you have a top actionable tip for improving conversions on a website? Uh, just what I said in the beginning, which is if you really want to change the work that you do, do one thing and, and seriously look at all of your marketing, all of your pages in the eyes of the person that's, that's arriving. Put yourself in their shoes and see what they see. Think what they think. You know, um, if you, and uh, the way that I would explain this or conclude it would say, has there ever been a time where you watched an, a television ad and you were like, who got paid to write this ad? <laughs> who got paid to make this ad? Look at your website and try to find those moments. Who got paid to make this page? Oh, wait, I did. Okay, so how do I get out of that, right? Try to find those moments where that occurs. And I promise you, you're going to find something. Awesome advice. Where can people find out more about you or get in touch with you or the MagLabs uh, research? 
Um, people can find me on Twitter at John Jowen Powell 31. And every day, even over the weekends, I'll post something from the Marketing Sherpa Marketing Experiments Library that's publishable. So um, something that's uh, either available that may be difficult to find. So um, this is where I'm trying to help people find the right piece of research that they can use. So if you follow me, that's that's one way I like to serve those who, who take the time to do that. I'm also on LinkedIn. You send me messages and whatnot. I'll do my best to help. And then finally, um, you know, feel free to visit MechLabs and MeCLEBS.com. And we've got a lot of free research there, marketing Sherpa, marketing experiments. Uh, and it's um, and we even have a place for certification courses and such. But I'd encourage, um, you know, if you're looking for some inspiration, you're looking for some ideas, or you're looking to build a case for something, go there. And if you're having trouble finding something, let me know. And um, we'll see what we can find. Awesome. So thanks for your time today. Yeah, no problem. And thanks for the great insights you've provided. And I think it's really informative and useful. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Convergence Podcast. Please leave us a review and rating on iTunes if you enjoy our podcast. We love hearing from you. Connect with us at our website, convergencepodcast.com, and let us know what you think. 